Well, this morning's uh, study is number seven in our series, and we are working our way through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've given it the title, as you can see there on screen, A Love Affair with Problems. And that's uh, certainly an apt description for the church at Corinth, in the city of Corinth, 2,000 years ago. And these uh, Corinthian Christians were living in a city which is full of immorality. But instead of them, them standing out as beacons of light in what was that ancient sin city, they merged with all that was going on there. And they were indistinguishable from uh, those who were not Christians. Uh, Dan has told us uh, recently that the church in Corinth could be summed up in this way, that they were intellectually proud, materially prosperous, and also morally corrupt. There are many illustrations that we find in the New Testament for the church. It's uh, spoken of as the, the, the bride of Christ, the, the body of Christ, uh, an army of God, or uh, God's temple. But maybe we could add another um, metaphor that the church could be called. It's not called in the New Testament this, but what about a lifeboat? You see, a lifeboat must be in the, in the sea to be any use to people. It must be in the sea, but the sea must never be in the lifeboat. Otherwise, there's going to be disaster. And the church needs to be in the world to be any use in saving people. It's no good being hidden away from the real world within the four walls of a church building. But at the same time, the world's value systems must never be inside the church. And the church of Corinth was most certainly in the world being situated in the middle of a very corrupt city. And sadly, we read also that the world, or the worldly values, were also inside the church at Corinth. The, this corrupt city had rubbed off onto the church. And uh, today we're going to read chapter 6. We thought that uh, Dan had a hard chapter last week. I think this is probably as, as difficult for us to understand. <laughs> Thank you, Marty. Um, we are going to have uh, Brian, who is going to come to read to us. And please, on a Sunday, do bring your Bibles along. And bring a notebook uh, as well, if you can, because there's so much that we speak about on a Sunday that is so easy to forget by uh, a Monday morning. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. 
why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. I've wrestled with this uh, chapter all week and uh, I've read it many times over and I've read it, read it in many different versions of, uh, of the Bible. And this morning we're going to endeavour to understand why Paul needed to write these words, first of all. And secondly, and very importantly, what they actually mean to us as uh, Christians living in Tamworth in the 21st century. So, what is this chapter all about? And um, I believe that the chapter is all about what is contained in the last two verses. So let me just put those verses up for you. Paul writes there in verse 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. You see, all of this chapter, and actually all of last week's chapter that uh, Dan brought to us, chapter 5, is all about honouring God in the way that we live. And Paul says here that we have been purchased with a price, and that price is the precious blood of Jesus, that we are no longer our own, that we belong to him, that we have been set free um, by Christ, and that we are to honour 
God with our bodies here on earth. And that's the message of this chapter. And um, it was very, very important for the Corinthian Christians to hear that message. It's very important for Christians of all time to hear that message and for us today in Tamworth. And um, I've spoken about this um, on this chapter, as I, as I look back, my ministry has now probably gone into about three decades. I've spoken on it twice before. <clears throat> and I still feel that I haven't extracted all that this chapter contains, even on a third bite at this. On the first occasion I spoke uh, on this chapter was in 1989. Uh, at that time, Julie and I were planting uh, a church congregation in a very notorious housing estate in South Wales. And um, towards the end of my talk, I quoted verse 19 about our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. And I then, for some reason, obviously the Lord knew about this, but for some reason, as I, as I thought at the time, I went off on a tangent and I spoke on the subject of suicide. As far as I can remember, that wasn't at all in any of my notes. And uh, I just encouraged the congregation how precious they were in God's sight and that our bodies are places where God resides. After the service, uh, a guy by the name of Dave came up to me and asked me how I knew about him. I said, I know nothing about you, Dave. Uh, Why do you say that? Well, he said you were speaking to me. And then he showed me his neck with rope burns from an attempted suicide earlier that day. And... um, he didn't believe that life was worth living, you see. I told him that he was precious to God. He was precious to God. And he gave his life and became a follower of Christ. And maybe this morning, you know, if you are a person here who has ever contemplated taking your life, and it may be that you have said, my life amounts to nothing at all. I've got nothing to live for. I want you to know today that you are precious, precious, precious in God's sight. And God desires to come and do things in your life that would revolutionize everything, revolutionize your world. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know, it's certainly not purposeful, it's not meaningful. And maybe the way that I would describe my life is an existence or words similar. And I would say to you, let Jesus in because he can change all of that. I said there was twice that I had spoken on this chapter previously. On the other occasion, there is another in quite incredible story, uh, just like Dave's story. And that was seven years later in 1996. And I'll tell you that story a little bit later, okay? I, w- I won't forget. But for now, I want us to get into the, the passage that we're looking at this morning. Paul commences this chapter by condemning the Corinthian Christians. And what was happening there was that Christians were taking other Christians to court. And this was a particularly Greek thing to do because no Jew would ever take another Jew to court. They would settle the dispute with the elders of the village or in the synagogue, but it was expressly forbidden in the Jewish law to take a Jew taking another Jew to court certainly in a Gentile court. But Corinth was a Greek city, and the Greek law courts were places of entertainment. You see, in those days, you couldn't switch on the television and watch um, 
Judge John Deed or Kavanagh QC or Suits or Silks or whatever courtroom drama there was. You couldn't do that. So people went along to the courts. That's where they had their entertainment. And the system of, war, of law worked this way in, um, in the first century Greece, particularly in the cities of Corinth and Athens. Firstly, if you had a disagreement, you would go along to someone who would be a private arbitrator. And sometimes that didn't settle the problem. So you would then go along to a court named the Forty. And this was um, uh, consisted of citizens in their 60th year. And these 60-year-old citizens were compelled as a kind of jury service to form this court. If the matter couldn't be settled there, then for lesser claims you went to a court of 201 citizens. For greater claims, you went along to a court of 401 citizens. And some of the courts even had as many as 6,000 people in the jury in ancient Greece. Imagine the national expenses for that. So, given that as a backdrop, you can imagine that in a Greek city, every man over the age of 30 was uh, more or less a lawyer because they spent so many hours uh, listening to and deciding upon court cases. But what shocked Paul more than anything else was that he heard that the Corinthian Christians were taking each other to these courts. And Paul speaks to them harshly um, and he gives them three reasons why they should not do this. Let me put these verses on screen. First in uh, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes to them, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? The word saints there um, needs probably some explaining. You know, don't think of um, saints as those being canonized in the Roman Catholic Church long after they're dead. Paul wasn't referring to that at all. What he was referring to is just Christians, that we today, today are the saints, okay? And that's the Bible way, that's Paul's way. Uh, to understand this. So, so don't think of, you know, sort of canonized Roman Catholic, uh, you know, sort of uh, people after, long after they're dead. He wasn't speaking about that, that, that at all. Paul is referring to Christians, all Christians. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, the very fact that uh, he calls them saints and yet they were so unsaintly. Paul says there's coming a day when Christians will judge the world. Judge the world and angels with Christ. And if we're going to do that one day, says Paul, then surely these cases that they are disputing about in the Corinthian church are utterly trivial in comparison. They pale into insignificance. And Paul says that uh, it would be better in the church, even if men of little account in the church judge over disputes than to allow those disputes to get to the Corinthian courts. At least those men, he says, would have some kind of spiritual perspective and make a judgment in accordance with God's ways. So that's the first thing that he says to them. We're at this moment, okay, we're just trying to unpack and unpick the 
background and the context so that we can understand what's going on here in Scripture. It's really important to do that, don't you think? You know, because, you know, we come to Scripture sometimes and we're removed from it by 2,000 miles and 2,000 years. And think, oh, what's, that, what's, what's going on there? And then when we can understand a little bit of that, then we must always, and it's so important, say, okay, I get it, I understand what was going on there, what does this mean now for me today? Okay? And you've always got to ha- ask those two questions. But let's carry on with this for a moment. The second reason that he gives them is in verse 7. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? What Paul is saying here is that these Corinthian Christians had lost even before they got to court. You know, we've got an old saying, saying, haven't we? Um, That you can win an argument but lose the person. And very often we use that within the, in, within the context of personal evangelism. When a Christian might feel that they have a far superior argument uh, for the Christian faith than the person that Christian is debating against, but might eventually turn the other person away because of his rudeness or unkindness or lack of compassion or mercy. And similarly, these people had lost ever before they went to court. They'd lost because their testimony as Christians was in shreds. They lost because they were preaching, supposedly, a gospel of reconciliation. And they were showing, essentially, that this was ineffective because they were not reconciled themselves. And then in the following verse, in verse 8, Paul makes another point um, that by going to court... They were sometimes cheating their fellow believers. And it's not plain what Paul is actually saying here, but I I tell you what I believe that Paul is saying. He is saying that it's possible to win a court case and to claim substantial damages, actually damages far more than what is fair. And simply doing that because of the clever rhetoric of your brilliant barrister or brilliant lawyer. I remember a few years back uh, watching a TV documentary entitled Barristers. And I've long since forgotten the the main content of that program. But there was a statement that I remember in that documentary where someone said, there's no such thing as hopeless cases, only hopeless barristers. (laughs) Okay. James is not here this morning to ask him whether that is true or not. But this was probably true in the ancient Greek courts as well. Where juries, because they were just normal people, were won over with the cleverness of argument by a brilliant debater. And sometimes the person had far greater damages awarded to them than they deserved and what was right. And therefore, Paul says, they were actually cheating and wrongdoing their brother in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. And then he goes on in verses 9 to 11. And it took me some time to understand what was going on here because it doesn't really seem connected. Let me go over this with you. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, 
nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the third reason that Paul seems to give here is that how can those juries who are made up of immoral people judge righteously? How can you put your lawsuits into the hands of people, the kind of people that you used to be yourselves? How can you do that? You're not going to have a godly judgment from ungodly people. And if you're a person who marks or underlines his or her Bible, will you underline that word were in verse 11? The word were. After Paul has listed a catalogue of sins, he reminds the Corinthian Christians that is what some of you were. It's past tense. You see, the greatest building in the city of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And prostitution was practiced in the name of religion in that city. And each evening, 1,000 sacred prostitutes, men and women, would come into the city and ply their trade. And people who were wanting to offering, offer their worship to the goddess uh, of that city, the goddess of love, did so through having sex with these prostitutes, men and women. It certainly gives the idea of a meeting for worship a, a totally different slant, doesn't it, really? Now, undoubtedly, most, if not all, of the uh, Christians there in Corinth would have been involved in these acts. And Paul reminds them of their past. He said, you used to be like this, but you have changed. Things have changed with you. And then he, he says in verse 11, you were washed. Might refer to baptism. I think it probably refers to what baptism is the symbol of. Baptism is a symbol of a new life. Uh, being clean on the inside. Being washed internally. And then he says, you were sanctified. Again, don't be frightened off by these more theological words because all that means is that you were set apart for God and you were justified which means you were made right with God and Paul says of these people that is what some of you were you see that's, that's the wonder isn't it of the Christian gospel it really is you know being a, a Christian as Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and all things have become new. A line has been drawn. A line from the past. There's been a washing on the inside. Set apart for God. Being made right with God. And that's why Christians, sometimes you listen to Christian people give their testimonies. And you think, why aren't they embarrassed about their past? Why aren't they red-faced about it? Christians can speak about their past because the past is the past. And God has made them new. And they are washed. And they are new people and new creations in Christ. Brand new, not remolds of their former self. So, 
how do Paul's words about lawsuits, you know, so we've, we've, we've spent some time on that this morning, in Corinth apply to us today? And we must always ask that question. In which way does this teaching in the scripture apply to us today? Probably most of us in this room don't go to court against other Christians. I doubt if that has ever happened for any of us. And maybe that some of us will go the entire, living our entire lives on planet earth without ever going to court. So what is this all about? Well, I think that we as Christians need to be very, very careful about not bringing our cases before courts of public opinion. We may not actually go into a court building, but we can bring our cases and our grievances before the courts of public opinion. What do I mean by that? Well, as Christians, we need to watch that we do not discuss other Christians or other churches or our own church family disparagingly before unbelievers. We must never air our dirty laundry before others. And it's actually something that makes my blood boil. I remember some of you, uh, there was a lady around some years back in this church, a lovely, godly, sweet lady um, uh, by the name of Jean McVeigh. Any of you remember Jean? A few of you will. What a lovely lady, wasn't she? Very elderly lady. And uh, I remember visiting Jean in the old St. Editha's Hospital off Wigington Road. And it was fairly obvious to the other ladies uh, when I visited her hospital that I was her pastor. And we started just having a, a conversation as a group of people. And um, uh, one of the ladies then offered uh, the fact that she was a Christian. And she seemed to know an awful lot about the Bible and so forth. So we continued the conversation. And then she's, uh, I, I, I asked the question, so what church do you go to then? And really that was the moment that everything changed. She said that uh, quite a few choice things about her vicar and all that he had done against that church and how reverent he was, etc., etc., etc. And everybody was listening in now. I tell you what, she might have been an old lady, but I wanted to get a sock. And I wanted to stick it somewhere. I really did. She aired her grievances before anyone who would listen. You see, what she was doing here was the sin of the Corinthians. Airing grievances in that way in the court of public opinion. And she dishonoured the Lord by her comments, if she was a Christian. And possibly, and this breaks my heart, she possibly hardened the hearts of those who needed to hear about Jesus. And it amazes me how many Christians go to their unbelieving friends and associates for help or guidance or to have a, just a, a blowout. Let me tell you another court of public opinion that you might know about. Or you might actually know it as Facebook. Now, I'm not, I'm not an old fuddy-duddy who's wanting to uh, have a right old go at Facebook because, you know, I think that Facebook as a tool for social interaction and keeping in touch with your friends all around the world is actually quite brilliant. I've got a Facebook account myself. But what really gets to me is when someone decides to write a vague 
statement on their status line which entices comments from other people like, I am really, really angry, dot, dot, dot. Or, I can't believe that some people would do that sort of thing. Unbelievable, dot, dot, dot. Or worse still, they call themselves Christians, exclamation mark. And then you get a lot of follow-up comments because, you know, those comments on a status line are meant to entice other reaction. And the comments that you then get is, oh, what's up, babe? (laughs) (laughs) You know, or, 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 or that sort of stuff. Probably not to a bloke, but, you know, you know, assuming it's a woman, you know, what's up, babe? And then you get the response, you know, a lot of worldly wisdom which is offered which nearly always includes getting your own back sorting out the offender but nothing ever 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 about turning the other cheek or going the second mile or just getting over it I don't want to write that on times I really do just get over it anyway I told you this, you know, sort of, you may read that scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, and you say, what application has that got to life today? It's got an awful lot of application for life today. And that's the way that we do it. And we as Christians, certainly, we need to wisen up on this. And never use Facebook for slander, sticking the boot in, or airing our dirty laundry. Because to do so is to dishonor God. You know, the Jesus way, If someone offends you, just talk to them about it. Show them, one-to-one. Have a chat. And if you can't, you know, win that person over through that, then take someone else along with you. Someone who is not going to be necessarily on your side to batter the other person down, but someone who can come along and help in the reconciliation process because the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to win the other person and to be reconciled, yeah? That's really important. I told you earlier on that I was going to tell you another story. I taught in this chapter on the 18th of September, sorry, 18th of November, must get it right, 1996. <clears throat> I looked at my old sermon notes this week. There wasn't much good in them, but you know, was, uh, <laughs> I thought I'd give it a try anyway. And uh, I, I, I looked out and I referred to on that occasion, it was in this church, I spoke about a feature that had appeared in the Tamworth Herald that week. And uh, it, it was a story of a group of Christians in Tamworth who had broken away from another church in Tamworth and set up their own church And then they went to air all of their grievances in the press. And I thought it was an ungodly thing to do. And I thought it was dishonouring to God. And in those days, I was far far less diplomatic (laughs) than I am today. You know, what you're seeing before you today is the meek and vile version of me, okay? In those days, I wasn't. And I went on to say 
Oh, my word. I went on to say that this church, which had been birthed in dishonor, that nothing would happen with it, you know, it wasn't going anywhere, that it would probably close soon, and I really went to town on this. I was incensed by what I'd, you know, that which has been birthed in dishonor is going to be dishonored by God and so forth. Following the service, I met a guy who was visiting our church, and he'd been invited by a, a member of our church at the time, and this guy looked ashen-faced and very annoyed. I think you're probably there, aren't you? You're there before me. He was one of the leaders of the breakaway group and the one responsible for the article in the Tamworth Herald. He asked if he could meet me sometime that week and uh, we, we met. And he asked if he could bring his co-leader with him as well. And I said, yeah, do that. Met in my office and um, tell you the truth, they came in all guns blazing. And I mean, it lasting, lasted for an hour or so. And in fairness to them, they finally understood that by their actions and what they had done was actually dishonoring to God. And they asked me what they should do. And I said, the first thing you need to do is to write to the church that you have written about in the Herald. And you are to apologize unconditionally for your comments. And you are to also ask for forgiveness from the minister that you have named in that article. And thirdly, I said, I want a copy of it myself so I can read it out to the church the following Sunday. And in fairness to them, that's what they did. And it wasn't a godly thing that they did initially, but they did their best to correct that. It's a funny thing as I look back. That church member who brought his friend in, I don't think he ever brought any other visitors in the length of time that he was in the church. But funny, funny about that, I'm not sure why. But you see, honouring God has a lot more to do than just singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. You know, this is, this is real practical stuff here. And then in verse 12, Paul now seems to come back to the <coughs> subject that he started in chapter 5. And the subject was sexual immorality. It must have been so, so difficult for these Christians having been brought up in that city. Not only were they brought up to accept that these practices were normal, but they probably were actively involved in them. And there were some within the church that didn't see a problem. And they were arguing against Paul and suggesting that, you know, Paul had got it wrong. And it's very interesting the way that they argue their case. In verse 12 there, everything is permissible for me, they said. And it appears that they were quoting Paul back to Paul. Because Paul would have told them that the moment they became Christians, they were free. They were not under law any longer. They were under God's grace. And that God has set us free in order to live freely for him and freely in this world. And they were probably talking about that. So that's why they said, everything is permissible for me. But Paul argues back and he said, that even though everything may be permissible, not everything is beneficial for Christians. And I love the way that, uh, and the Christian shouldn't be mastered by anything. And I love the way that the message puts this. Just because something is technically legal, doesn't mean that it is spiritually appropriate. Isn't that a good 
a good translation there of what's being said. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean it is spiritually appropriate. And Paul teaches us here something which is so, 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 so important by his answer. And he teaches us through what he doesn't actually say. Because you could, you know, he could have argued here, and the most obvious argument was with these people who were committing adultery and, you know, living sexually promiscuous lives, he could have quoted to them the Ten Commandments, yes? The Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. That would have seen the obvious thing that he would have quoted to them. But he chooses not to. So we need to ask a question, why does he not do that? And the answer to that is, because we are not bound by the Old Testament law. That would have been an Old Testament argument to New Testament people. Paul never does that. That would have been an argument, a Jewish argument, because it was the Jewish law to people who were not Jews. That's why he doesn't do that. You see, when he writes to the Galatians, he says to them, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It was for freedom. That means that we're not bound by the constraints of keeping the law in some way in order to try to make ourselves more righteous before God. And that includes the Ten Commandments. Not all the Ten Commandments are followed through in the New Testament, actually. Jesus replaces them with two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And often the advice that I give to new Christians, you know, because uh, when, I became a new, new, when I became a new Christian, people would say to me, well, almost give me a whole list of rules and regulations, you know. Now you're a Christian, you live like this, you don't do that, and you don't go there, and you do this, and you do the other. Yeah, and some of you might remember those days. That's wrong. I think that uh, the more scriptural advice is, you're free to live as you please. Uh, but you need to keep the first and second commandments. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that that is a far more New Testament approach as Paul uses here. He could have quoted, thou shalt not commit adultery. But no, that wasn't a message for Christians. That was a, an Old Testament message. That was a message for the Jews. It was their law. Okay. The other argument that um, Paul, that we see from these Corinthian believers is, is, is a, a, an incredibly contemporary, modern-day um, uh, argument. And this is what they said. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Now, that's the idea that just as the stomach was made for the food and food was made for the stomach, it went along like this. If I'm hungry, I'll eat. If I'm thirsty, I'll drink. If I'm tired, I'll sleep. If I want sex, then I'll find someone appropriate to have sex with. That all of our natural urges need to be met. And that was the argument when they said, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Um, Hugh Hefner from the Playboy Empire. Not often I quote him on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what he says. Sex is a function of the body, a drive which man shares with animals. Like eating, drinking and sleeping, it's physical demand. 
that must be satisfied. If you don't satisfy it, you will have all sorts of neurosis and repression psychosis. Sex is here to stay. Let's forget the prudery that makes us hide from it. Throw away those inhibitions. Find a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. Well, most of us would say nonsense. And Paul takes three pot shots against that. And there's so much more teaching. Oh, my word. I, I just wish I had another hour here this morning. <laughs> and we still wouldn't cover it. But let me just try to summarize where he goes with this kind of argument. And the first, in, in fact, it's an argument where he reminds us of our relationship to the Trinity. To God the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Holy Spirit. Okay? And his first argument tells us that God the Father has created our bodies. And one day, he is going to resurrect them in glory. You see, our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies have a wonderful origin. But they have an even more wonderful future. Did you know that? And this is what uh, Paul writes then, verses 13 and 14. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. And Paul's point here is, the Corinthians were saying the body doesn't matter. It's the soul, that's all that matters. And Paul is saying, no, the body does matter. We're not merely a soul inside our body. We're a whole person. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead as a soul, but as a body as well. And the power of God that raised Jesus' body will also, one day when Christ returns... Raise our bodies. Yeah? That's the argument. So he says, consider God the Father. And secondly, consider God the Son. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Again, this is a very, very powerful argument here. That... When you become a Christian, when we become Christians, we become members of Christ's body, yes. Your hands are now his hands. Your feet are now his feet. And Paul is saying, how could anyone take that which is united to Christ and join it to a prostitute? It should never happen. And you, okay, we don't live in Corinth. But the temptations, the sexual temptations, are still around us every day. And these lessons apply to us as much as they did 2,000 years ago to the Corinthians. Consider the Son of God and consider God the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Do you not know that, in your, body, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for people. And in the New Testament, God had a people for his temple. Let me give you that again. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. And in the New Testament, God had a people for his temple. You know, in the Old Testament, God was seen in the tabernacle and in the temple. In the New Testament, he lives in the Christian and in the Christian church. And I said a few weeks ago, it doesn't 
uh, you know, no matter how ornate or wonderful a church building might be, it's not the church building that has the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it's the, the Christian. And therefore, we are to honour God with our bodies. That's the challenge for today. That's our challenge. And the challenge is, do we?